Today's reading is from Galatians three twenty three to 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as I carry out my calling this morning to proclaim and to expound God's word, that I might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, exhort your church to grasp more fully what it means to live in union with Christ, and that you, Father, would help all of us see deeply our identity as sons of God. And most of all, that your name would be praised this morning. Lord, would you help me, fill me with your Holy Spirit to communicate truth well, that we might hear and respond with faith. I pray for those that are gathered here this morning, that perhaps some may feel like an outsider, or even those that do consider themselves regulars, that all of us might be granted the faith to believe that we can be part of your family by faith in Jesus Christ. That in Christ there is hope because we have been promised an inheritance in heaven. Father, would your Holy Spirit come and minister to us this morning, minister to our hearts, that it might bring about conviction repentance, belief, and may we worship you in exaltation as a result. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ City. It's an honor to be here, uh, to be able to bring God's word to you. I want to begin by uh, bringing you, telling you a very personal story. And I'm doing so because I think it frames well what we're about to study in Galatians, this short text, in a very real, present, and practical situation. So just to give you a little bit of a map, first I'm going to tell you this story and, and kind of bring out the questions that it raised. And then second, we'll study the text under two headings. The first heading is the law places us under protective custody. The law places us under protective custody. Second, by faith in Christ, we are positioned under the promise. By faith in Christ, we are positioned under the promise. And then finally, I'll tease out what the implications are for you and for me. My aim this morning is to paint a picture of what it means to live as full heirs of the Abrahamic promise in Christ as we are liberated from the protective custody of the law. So here's the story. 
Shortly after Karen and I were engaged in 2001, we attended a family life marriage conference. We sat uh, under the teaching of Peter and Shirley Unrau. Oh, these were a, they were a very dear, sweet, elderly couple who led us through a series of sessions on what the biblical definition of marriage is. And as Karen and I listened intently, talk about their love for Jesus, for one another, and as we heard them enthusiastically and unashamedly talk about things like their sex life, it was evident that their marriage was not only successful, but that it had a godly quality to it. In fact, it reminded me of Ephesians 5. Their marriage reflected and illustrated the mystery of Jesus and his bride, the church. There was a set-apartness, a holiness quality to it that made their marriage supremely attractive. And yet at the same time, I remember feeling terribly sad and lost and powerless. I could not help but filter all that I was hearing and seeing and reading in light of my parents' failed marriage. After all, in years prior, I had witnessed countless conflicts, shame, guilt, pride, periods of incredible silence, desperate attempts to reconcile and do better, and eventually the dramatic abandonment of the marriage altogether. I took a look at the legacy that I had inherited, and I felt hopeless. You know, sociological studies didn't help either. Um, I read, you know, Judith Wallerstein and uh, Nicholas Wolf. Uh, I don't remember what his name was, but viewed from a secular point of view, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out that children of divorce are more likely to divorce themselves. Even today, in moments of weakness, I will long for and I will wish that my parental family was intact, that my inherited legacy was better. Oh, I vowed to do better. You know, the umpteen scripture references that Pete and Shirley had had downloaded onto us. I wrote them down in my notebook. Their own marriage served as a model. I had all the materials to serve as a guide. I knew what to do. I knew what not to do. And so I vowed to do better. But the more I thought about how I was going to do this, a nagging, growing sense of inadequacy, of powerlessness, of anxiety began to grow in my heart. How might it be possible for Karen and me to achieve this? How? I did not know it at the time, but I had actually run up against what Paul 
uh, has been talking about in Galatians 3 about the law. I knew the standard, but I was at the same time powerless. The standard actually had both protected me, for it restrained me from repeating much of what my parents had done, and yet it also imprisoned me. How could I be confident that my marriage with Karen and my family would not turn out the same way? Well, let's look at the text. Just to give you a bit of a refresher of where we are in Galatians, Paul has been strongly reminding his readers that we are justified in faith, by faith in Christ alone. That is, we are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. Recall Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. The first part says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has been hammering away at this doctrine of justification. He's been, he's been hammering and hammering and hammering away at this doctrine of justification. And as a result... Brant and Fred have been equally pounding away from this pulpit about the doctrine of justification as well. But in diving into the theological constructs, it's easy to forget the bigger context in which this discussion has all taken place. You see, Paul was writing to the church at Galatia because within this community were certain Jews who were protesting against how these Gentile sinners were being brought into the family. They insisted that the new Gentile converts were but half-baked. They insisted that these Gentile converts needed to add the law to their faith. They needed to be put back under the broilers, so to speak, in order to finish cooking. You see, while the debate was certainly theological... On a relational level, it was about who was in and who was out. Who qualifies to be a descendant of Abraham and thus an heir to the promise? Now, you have to understand that for a first century Jew, okay, this would have been, this would have been completely uh, sensical. This would have made complete sense. Their whole cultural and religious identity surrounded the fact that they were the physical descendants of Abraham. They were God's chosen people. They had the pedigree. They were the ones that had received the law through Moses. They were the ones who had strived so hard to keep the law. They knew God to be their God. They were the ones with the history with God. They were the ones that knew God to be sovereign and holy. It's a bit like the plot line of a recently popular movie, Crazy Rich Asians, where Israel, the heiress of a wealthy, well-known family, took pride in and protected their constructed identity and all that entailed 
because they thought it necessary to uphold and maintain the dignity and inheritance of the Abrahamic promise. You see, to be part of the family, so to speak, meant that they had to, one had to conform to the trappings of the Old Covenant. And they considered the law and the outward signs as the true markers of what made them God's people. And here is Paul, who, by the way, is the Jew of Jews, having an impeccable pedigree. Here was Paul systematically using scripture to demonstrate that who they thought was in and who they thought was out was completely wrong. Only in Christ alone, the prophesied offspring of Abraham, could one be considered a son of God and an heir to the promise. Look, just, just think about the identity politics that is so prevalent nowadays. And you can imagine how completely mind-blowing that this was. Even if you're not a first century Jew, and I can venture to say pretty, pretty confidently that none of us here are a first century Jew, we are conditioned to operate, to identify ourselves based on the past, based on our pedigree, based on our social status, our race, our gender, our customs and traditions, based upon what we have accomplished. These, by the way, are a bit of a preview um, of what I think Paul gets to in chapter 4, verse 3, when he refers to the elemental principles of the world. But more on that next week with Brandt. Jew or Gentile, we are wired to think about who is in and who is not by our standards. And so because of that, these few verses in verses 23 through 29 are monumental. They completely turn upside down what people have thought about themselves, the purpose of the law, the significance of Christ. And as the gospel does so well, it humbles us and it magnifies Jesus Christ. So likewise, if we take the time to re read it and view it rightly, we too will find that this completely turns our assumptions that we have about ourselves on its head. The way we operate on its head. It humbles us and it magnifies Jesus Christ. So, the first point, the law places us under protective custody. The law places us under protective custody. We'll begin by looking at where Brant left us last time in verses 22 and 23. It says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul has no shortage of adjectives to describe the purpose and the effect of the law. We saw this last time, that one of the uses of the law was to be uh, an honest mirror for our transgressions. It was to reflect the perfect standard, the perfect holiness of, of God, that all of us might see that we fall short, way short. Unless you think that you're a pretty good person, 
For example, you might look at the 6th and 7th commandment in Exodus 20, 13 through 14. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And you might think, well, I haven't done any of those. Consider what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he offered commentary on the Ten Commandments. He said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Similarly for adultery, verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law is an honest mirror. When we look at ourselves in it, we are quickly condemned. And following Paul's argument, when we are condemned, we are imprisoned and held captive. But Paul's also very quick to shift metaphors. In Galatians 3.24, we read, So then the law was our guardian. At first glance, we might get the idea that he means a prison guard. But if you look more closely at the original text, the word anglicized as pedagogue, which the ESV has translated as guardian, actually refers to a slave who had the charge of the life and morals of the boys of the family. You know, it's actually really difficult. Um, it's, it's really difficult for us in 21st century Western culture to, to, to really grasp what this means. But probably the closest contextual equivalent is that of a foster parent. The image of a child being put in protective custody by social services as a temporary means for their good until such time that suitable and permanent adoptive parents might be found. We see here that the law serves to condemn, to imprison. It also serves to protect and to guide. Foster kids, particularly those that have gotten into trouble with the law, know this protective dynamic very well. But don't miss Paul's point. While the law serves as guardian, it was only meant to be a temporary measure until Christ came. Until Christ came. No one should confuse the diamond engagement ring for the bridegroom. And yet this was what plagued the Galatians. And this is what Paul sought to address. The law itself was unable to save. And it has that same effect today. While it may serve to restrain, to protect, to instruct like the example I started with, it is devoid of power to change our deepest desires. While the law is valuable and a sign of God's faithfulness and revelation, it is not what makes us part of the family. Which brings me to the second point. By faith in Christ, we are positioned under the promise. By faith in Christ, we are positioned under the promise. I want you to see this morning the force 
in which Paul writes these verses. We, we cannot miss this in the context of the relational debate in all of Galatians of who is in and who is out. Paul has revealed, has revisited the doctrine of justification. He's brought us through redemptive history. He's explained the use of the law. And here, finally, he gets to the watershed moment. That watershed moment when he pivots. He pivots from the theological and the institutional to the personal. He pivots from the redemptive history back to relationships. He pivots from fostering to fatherhood. We see in verses 25 and 26, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. While the law and the Old Testament emphasized the the holiness of God and the fear of the Lord, the other side of the coin is faith. Faith, in this context, is shorthand for the era of faith or the object of faith. It's shorthand for the whole complex of events related to the life, death, curse, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So let's read that again. Now that Messiah has come, he's lived a perfectly righteous life under the law. He's served as curse for you, died for your sin, resurrected that you might be born again, and given you the spirit that you might believe. You are no longer under the protective custody of foster parents. No, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This would have been really, really jarring to the Judaizers who were trying to distinguish between new Gentile converts and Jews that had come to know Jesus. The primary marker of who was in and who was not had nothing to do with one's physical pedigree. It had nothing to do with one's inherited past, nor social status, nor gender. The primary marker had everything to do with one person, Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, who he is what he has done his status his eternal past through faith in Jesus you are all sons of God now even as of a few weeks ago um, this phrase sons of God I, I actually did not realize the significance of what Paul meant by sons of God In fact, in my small group, I actually have a number of women who attend, and so I have always been very careful to say sons and daughters of God in order to be inclusive and politically correct 
which is absolutely true in one sense, but completely misses the point in another. Here's why. You see, in addressing the who is in and the who is out question, the great theme of being an heir pervades throughout. In the Middle Eastern culture of the day, to be son, to be the firstborn son, meant that you were the designated legal heir. It was a status that was forbidden to women. Daughters could not inherit property. And so for Paul to say that in Christ, you are all, all sons of God, was a radical, even offensive statement. It meant that Christ breaks down all barriers. Through faith in Christ, we are all heirs. God has found us valuable. He's found us worthy of heirship by virtue of our relationship and our union with Christ. He's apt to underscore this in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The inherited legacy of what all those categories meant, all the racial categories, all the social status categories, and what they were worth, they were rendered worthless by Christ who has positioned us under the promise of Abraham and declared us heirs with Christ. Though we remain as individuals, though we remain diverse in our roles, though we still have unique gifts, we are of equal value, equal worth, identified as heirs to the Abrahamic promise because we have been identified and unified with Christ. Unity in diversity. And this unity is demonstrated by another one of Paul's favorite metaphors, that of putting on Christ. In verse 27, we see that he has said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know, much of that is lost in our younger contemporary culture. What that means, anyway. What we wear tends to be a fashion statement rather than a statement of identity. Yeah, Karen and I still get this. We still chuckle at this. We, we get a chuckle uh, when we see, for instance, younger Caucasian women wearing uh, the traditional Chinese cheng sam as sort of a, a trendy fashion statement when practically nothing else that they do even remotely resembles the cultural conduct of a Chinese woman. By contrast, clothing had much to do with one's identity in Paul's day. Children, for instance, would remove their childhood robes when they gained the age of maturity, and they would put on togas as adults to signify the change. 
thus further carrying on this image of guardianship to adoption. In the baptismal context that Paul is talking about, one commentator was prudent to point out that in the ancient practice, the person being baptized would strip naked, identifying both with the manner in which Christ was crucified and the nakedness of the new birth. They would walk into the baptismal waters and be baptized. And then, as they came out of the baptismal waters, they'd be given new garments, signifying the, their putting on of Christ in a newness of life. Baptism was, and still remains, an external symbol to signify an internal change. But it would have been very visibly significant, very visibly significant, that the community of believers would symbolically wear the same clothes, that of Jesus Christ. Following Paul's argument, it would be significant that those now clothed in Christ are Abraham's offspring. And so this is what Paul gets to in verse 29. And if you are Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you get the logic? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, therefore you are heirs according to the promise. Of course, the immediate question that I have when I read this is, well, what does it mean to be heirs according to the promise? You know, we could preach several sermons just on this topic alone. But allow me to sketch you a very brief picture. The first and probably the most obvious meaning that is that we receive the promise of justification. The last part in verse 24, which we skipped earlier, tells us as much. Galatians 3.24 So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But we also find this in passages like Romans chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The second meaning that I think heirs means is that we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.14 So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Ephesians 1.13-14 says that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who was the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Likewise, in 1 Peter, one, three through five, one of my favorite passages. We read that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, it should not be lost on us that that actually in 
in Genesis 17.4, when God covenanted with Abraham, that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. It should also not be lost uh, that God promised in Genesis 17.8 that his offspring, uh, promised to Abraham and his offspring, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, that he would be their God. Indeed, our brothers and sisters in Christ come from all nations, and we pray for and continue to see the gospel go forth to the nations. That is why this church supports the work of missions. But we also see in these passages that there is a future an eschatological element to our heirship in Christ and our inheritance. And that ultimately comes to fruition at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth. Look briefly with me at Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. As John's vision contrasts what will be the promised inheritance for heirs and what will not. Revelations 21, 7-8 The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So coming back to Galatians, hear now again the words in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. After the marriage conference, many came up to chat with Pete and Shirley, including me and Karen. I remember this moment very, very well. You know, we all have, I don't know about you, but we all have watershed moments in our lives, and this was, this was one of them for me. All of the thoughts all of the insecurities that had been stirring in my head about my new role as a husband, about my new role as a potential father, had come crashing down on this one moment. I went up to Pete and Shirley, I, I shook their hand. And I simply said, you pray for me? We're, we're an engaged couple, and my, my, my parents, and it was at this moment that I, I, I couldn't say any more words. All I did was cry. I simply cried, and the two of them simply laid their hands on me and Karen 
and prompted solely by the Holy Spirit, prayed fervently for exactly what had been on my heart. They reminded me that I would know deeply how much I am loved by Christ, how much my identity does not rest in what in the legacy that I had inherited, but rested in Jesus Christ alone. They reminded me that I was known by my Father. By God's grace, Karen and I have a God-honoring marriage. And we have a family that tries to, seeks to reflect Christ by his grace. We are not perfect. In fact, I am still learning daily what it means to live like this. I'm learning daily that our Father is the one who holds us fast. I'm learning daily to humble myself before the cross of Jesus Christ, to choose not to live defined by my inherited past, but to live defined by my future inheritance in Jesus Christ. How about you? Our hearts are all shaped by sin and suffering. We all have a past. That past can be good, can be sinful. We all have broken hearts. But Jesus Christ came to give you a new heart, to redeem that heart, to give you a new identity, and to give you a new inheritance. And that inheritance does not come from the past. It comes from the future. He came to position us by faith under the Abrahamic promise to give you a new inheritance. How about you? Let me close with three questions. Implications. Do you know God as your father? Do you relate to him as his son or daughter? Or do you remain trapped under the guardianship of the law? J.I. Packer once wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child having God as his Father. Everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Does the thought of the fatherhood of God prompt, does it control your worship, your prayers, your whole outlook on life? That's the first question. The second question. Are you living out of a past-oriented 
inheritance? Or are you living out of the future inheritance through Abraham's promise? The Christian life is a future-sustained life. You know why? We know the ending of the story. We know the ending of the story. We don't live past, present, future. We live past, future, present. One of my favorite books of 2018 by a guy named Russell Moore. One of the professors at my seminary, actually. Uh, it's called The Storm-Tossed Family. He writes this in, in his book. You don't have to come from a good family and even know who your parents were to experience the fatherhood of God. In reality, every family is, to some degree or other, a broken family. If you've come from a terrible situation, God is not surprised by this. After all, Jesus loves you. The good shepherd came out searching for you. The fact that you know that something was wrong is actually grace. The fact that the gospel has come to you means that God, fully knowing your background, offers you, right along with the rest of us, a new identity and a new inheritance. Third implication and question. Do you have the present confidence to persevere because of your identity and your future inheritance in Jesus Christ? Has that pivotal watershed moment happened for you where you realize that in Christ and as his co-heirs, we can boldly boldly approach the throne of God as his sons and daughters and we can ask him to help us. Do you know this confidence? I do and I pray that you will too. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. For your word reveals a picture of who you are that is not a one-dimensional or two-dimensional picture. It is a multi-dimensional picture. For God, you are holy. You are sovereign. You are the king of kings. You are, in some regard, distant. And yet you are so close. You are father. You Relate to us. You call us part of your family as sons and daughters, as heirs, because you came and you redeemed us. You sent your son to die for us in order to give us a new identity and a new inheritance. Oh God, help us to live in that that we might orient our hearts to you, that we might experience and know the power that comes not from our own strength, but from 
your Holy Spirit that comes from that comes from our identity as your children. Father, I pray that if there are people in this room that do not know you as Father, that you would give them the faith to see their need for you, that you would give them the strength to repent and to believe, to know the glorious hope that we have in you, the glorious confidence that we have in you. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.